Good evening, everyone. We've got breaking news from the Supreme Court. Moments ago, the high court blocked in full a decision by Texas-based U.S. District Judge Matthew Kaczmarek on April 7 that invalidated the Food and Drug Administration's longtime approval of the abortion pill Mifepristone. Conservative Justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito publicly dissented from the decision. This means the Supreme Court has allowed the pill to stay on the market and remain widely available, at least for now. People can still obtain Mifepristone by mail for now and use it at home and use it up to 10 weeks into a pregnancy as litigation continues into the Supreme Court. The generic version of the drug made by a company called GenBioPro will also continue to be available. Joining me now are Minnie Timaraju, president of the NARAL, of NARAL Pro-Choice America, and Lisa Rubin, MSNBC legal analyst. Lisa, I want you to go through this decision with me because, uh, and I think Ari talked about it in the previous hour, but what I read here is something that kind of reads like shade. Um, this decision, talking about in recent cases, the court has been lambasted for staying a district court order based on the scanty review this court gives matters on its shadow docket. This Opening with lots of criticism of people who've been critical of the court. Is that normal? And what do you make of it? This is a court that isn't getting along particularly well, Joyce. So you're asking me, is this normal? It hasn't been normal up through the Trump presidency. And yet we now have nine justices that are largely at each other's throats and defying the collegiality that has traditionally defined the Supreme Court. But you're right to say Justice Alito is indeed casting shade and criticizing folks like Justice Kagan, who have been critical of the court for mapping on its policy preferences to a number of different things through decisions that they don't explain by use of what we call the shadow docket. Those are cases that are not litigated on their merits, but come to the court on some application for emergency relief as this did. And to me, it smacks of, I know you are, but what am I? Justice Alito has often been in the group of people willing to grant that emergency relief. And tonight he's not because it doesn't comport with his own policy preferences and specifically his longstanding antipathy toward abortion. I want to read another part of this. This is Alito's dissent. Um, the applicants claim that regulations then enforce if prohibited. Uh, and here, the well, let me just skip to this part. Here, the government has not dispelled legitimate doubts mm. that it would even obey an unfavorable order in these cases, much less that it would choose to take enforcement actions to which it has strong objections. Lisa, yeah. this reads to me like him admitting we don't have an army. We don't have the ability to enforce our decisions, and we're not sure the government would even obey. <laughs> I mean, it, it, that's a pretty glaring admission of weakness and a pretty churlish thing to write down in your dissent. This guy seems to be all in his feelings that the American people oppose his attempts to play mullah instead of Supreme Court justice and ban abortion. And I hear that, Joy. You know, on one hand, he's not wrong. The FDA does have what's called enforcement discretion, just like a prosecutor has discretion not to bring every case that violates the law. However, there's no indication on this record, as you noted, that the FDA wouldn't follow a validly issued court order. And for him to insinuate that this administration and this independent FDA wouldn't follow the law is, to use your words, you know, absurd, absurdly churlish and, and frankly, not becoming a justice of the Supreme Court.
Well, there's been a lot of that going around. Mini Tamaraju, uh, let me get your reaction to this stay, uh, which surprised a lot of people who just assumed the court was going to continue along its uh, ban abortion trajectory. Your reaction? You know, it's a temporary relief. You know, for providers, for patients across the country, um, for activists, for organizers, but most importantly, for the American people, for people who can get pregnant and women across the country. So we have temporary relief. Now this goes back to the Fifth Circuit, which is also, frankly, not a very hospitable place for abortion rights. It does mean, however, that we have more time and time is really good in this scenario. I want to read just another little piece of this. Just for those of you who don't uh, read a lot of SCOTUS blog, normally these rulings are fairly dry. They're fairly sort of straightforward. But in this case, in his uh, dissent, Alito is scathing. Um, he writes that in another instance, we were criticized for ruling on a stay application while barely bothering to explain our conclusion, a disposition that was labeled as emblematic of too much of this court's shadow docket decision making, which every day becomes more unreasonable. The case that he's citing in which that criticism took place, he then cites whole woman's health versus Jackson. Uh, I'm going to start with you, Minnie, and then ask Lisa to weigh in as well. It seems to me that this court, if nothing else, understands the political and social impact that its decisions have had in terms of the party of its seeming preference and the way that they have fared ever since. Is that how you see it? Yes. And I think it's really hard to ignore the context in which this is all happening. Right. We have a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing on ethics in a few weeks. We have a never ending scandals on the front page involving this court. We have a history of leaks involving Justice Alito, ethics issues involving Justice Thomas. So it's hard to imagine that the court cannot understand that not only are there politics around reproductive freedom and rights uh, at play here, but their image and their remarkably low approval rating by the American people who see them as illegitimate. You know, Lisa, it is, it, you know, it's interesting because the idea of making the court more diverse was supposed to be that these people with the collegiality with which they normally operate and then getting to know the fact that you've got a Sonia Sotomayor, that you've got an Alita Kagan, that you've now got a Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson means they're now exposed to other points of view and that they would somehow have a better sense of what the world outside of the Supreme Court is like. But it seems to me that Alito has done the opposite. He's become more insular. He's become more angry. He's become more enraged because somehow he believed that the decisions that he wrote, the decision he wrote in Jackson versus All Women's Health would be lauded. Did he think he was a defender of the faith and that people would be cheering in the streets? I'm not sure why they are so surprised, I guess so does the Republican Party, at how much chaos this has caused and how much anger. Well, I think they're angry for a number of reasons, Joy. One is that they don't like being criticized. And Justice Alito has taken a lot of heat over the last year. Some folks pointed to him as the potential source of the leak in the Dobbs decision. He was also criticized for meeting with some donors to the Supreme Court Historical Society. He then gave a speech to a rousing standing ovation, to your point, to the 40th anniversary of the Federalist Society. And he's taken a lot of heat in the intervening time because of that. So I think there's a certain um, intransigence on his part, definitely digging in because of that. 
But you're right. These people seem further apart than ever before. And the politics of grievance that are infecting our country that lead Donald Trump to be the front runner right now in the Republican race for candidacy for president. The Supreme Court is not immune to that. That politics of grievance seems to be infecting all of our American institutions right now and every branch of government. Yeah, indeed. Let me read what President Biden just said. He's just weighed in on tonight's news. He said in a statement, quote, today, the Supreme Court granted the Department of Justice's emergency stay application in alliance uh, for an alliance for Hippocratic medicine versus FDA, preventing lower court decision from going into effect that would have undermined FDA's medical judgment and put women's health at risk. As a result of the Supreme Court's stay, if a pristone remains available and approved for safe and effective use while we continue this fight in the courts, I continue to stand by FDA. FDA's evidence-based approval of Mifepristone, and my administration will continue to defend FDA's independent expert authority to review, approve, and regulate a wide range of prescription drugs. The stakes could not be higher for women across America. I will continue to fight politically driven attacks on women's health. But let's be clear, the American people must continue to use their vote as their voice and elect a Congress that will pass a law restoring the protections of Roe v. Wade. That's President Biden. Lisa, he mentioned political decisions out of the courts. And I think that very few would argue that that's not what's happening. And that started with this Texas judge. And I want you to just talk a little bit about this judge, because this is an unusual case. The people who he's saying have standing are doctors who say that somewhere in the future they might have to treat a woman in an ER because at some point she took me for Pristone. It's their job to treat women in the ER. I don't understand. I'm not a lawyer, but I don't see how they have standing to sue at all. But he let them do it. And his ruling, you want to talk about Alito's ruling being churlish. It read like a conservative screed. It didn't even read like anything I've ever read on SCOTUS blog. What is this guy's deal? This guy, Joy, you know, we know that he was raised in the conservative movement. He was raised actually in the crisis pregnancy movement. His mother was a long-term volunteer. His sister lived for some period of time in a home set up for unwed mothers who were committed to having their children and giving them up for adoption. He later served on the board of that organization. And I really think that Matt Kaczmarek never expected to be on the bench. He was nominated in the first place because the organization of which he was the deputy general counsel, its general counsel, was nominated to the bench, and he didn't survive the nominations process. And suddenly, Matt Kaczmarek was sort of thrust into being the Miss America of his own life, so to speak. And when he was there, he made some decisions that you and I would find not only problematic, but antithetical to the rule of law. He concealed from the Senate during his nominations process a number of things that he authored and or said in ways that start to look uh purposeful, in part because that was what happened to the guy who was nominated before him. He had not been honest about his own interviews with the same media organization to which Kazmarek gave a radio interview that was disclosed by CNN this week. So, you know, I don't begrudge someone having fervent, heartfelt religious beliefs. What I have a real problem with is when a soldier of the anti-abortion movement becomes a federal judge with lifetime tenure. This guy should never have been confirmed. This is the challenge, Minnie, is that you don't now have judges who are dedicated to simply analyzing the text of laws to determine their constitutionality. 
These are activists. These are activists who, whose sole purpose is apparently was to overturn Roe. It's clear that Alito was not honest in his interviews before the United States Senate about that. It's clear that Kavanaugh, who said he was just going to call balls and strikes, they all say it. They all say settled law, settled law, settled law, starry decisis, starry decisis, starry decisis. None of them were telling the truth. Amy Coney Barrett very clearly is an ideologue. You now have ideologues on the court who got through. How do we change the way that voters pay attention to Senate races by to connect them to the fact that that is how you wind up with a, a, a court that can take away your rights? We really have to be doing a massive public education campaign to the American people. So just a few days ago, we announced to The New York Times that NARAL, along with dozens of other organizations, the progressive movement have joined a campaign to focus on taking the taking the narrative about this court the extremist court, the ethics issues, and really examining every possible option to reform the court, including structural change. And by that, I mean court expansion. We have to take it to the American people. We have to have really robust conversations. We know that the American people don't trust this court. We know that the challenges with this court are undergirding all the challenges for us as a democracy. We don't have majority rule right now. We know the majority of American people are with us on abortion rights, on gun violence prevention, on LGBTQ plus American civil rights, and yet we cannot get things done. So we are taking this fight to the people, and we're going to make this a top election issue going into 2024. Lisa Rubin, what is the risk when the court is acting antithetically to the the wishes and will of a vast majority of Americans? I mean, at some point, I mean, they don't have a, a, an army to enforce their rulings. You know, it does put us in a very strange place when you have the vast majority of Americans completely and diametrically disagreeing with a court that has so much power. Absolutely, Joy. And, you know, this is also a court that in the Dobbs decision, you'll note that Justice Alito, who was the author of that decision, never cites it in his churlish dissent from the state tonight. But the Dobbs decision was supposed to be about restoring the issue of abortion to the will of the people and their elected representatives. And that was a lie on two fronts. It was a lie because there are a number of states all across the country, more than 20 of them, that are ruled by pro-choice elected officials and want the choice to allow their citizens to access mifepristone. But it's also a lie in another respect that we don't talk about enough. And that's because Congress passed the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act to give the FDA the authority to make decisions grounded in science about the safety and efficacy of medication. And mifepristone is one of those. And it should be the case that what the FDA says about the safety and efficacy of medication should preempt any conflicting state law. And now that we have a stay in this case, it's my hope that there are two litigations in the country, they're both in federal courts, that raise that preemption issue, it's my hope that they get a chance to play themselves out, too, so we can see who gets to make the call with, with respect to Mifepristone, states or the FDA? Let me ask you one more question to stay with you for a moment, Lisa Rubin. Inside of Kaczmarek's ruling, um, he repeatedly cites the Comstock Act, which was these sort of decency acts from the early 20th or late 19th century um, that made it illegal to transmit lewd material or any material that could be used for abortion or contraception. What is the risk that a Comstock Act-style case comes back to the United States Supreme Court and they rule that, indeed, you cannot transmit such things across state lines? That would mean it wouldn't matter if a pristone could not be sent across state lines. And wouldn't that, in effect, be a national abortion ban? 
It would be, Joy. And, you know, the, the one thing I would say about the Comstock Act is it's kind of like a federal zombie law. And many will know exactly what I'm talking about when I say this. In the wake of Roe, there were a number of laws all across the country, some of which were more than 130 years old, that banned abortion. And they were thought to be ineffective because Roe had superseded them. Roe had said that we have a federal constitutional right to abortion. The Comstock Act is one of those things that was never rescinded because in the wake of Roe, nobody thought it had any effect. And then it was discovered by the conservative movement and the anti-abortion right. And suddenly it's been revived from the dead, like, you know, the corpse in Weekend at Bernie's. The problem here is, while the Biden administration has no desire or inkling of, you know, any desire to enforce the Comstock Act, and they've even said so in an Office of Legal Counsel opinion, what happens if the Comstock Act is not rescinded by the next Congress? That's the danger that we're in right now. States can't necessarily afford uh, enforce the Comstock Act themselves, but all it takes is a change of president and a change of GOJ, and the Comstock Act gets revived from the dead, much like a Michigan law would have been had Governor Whitmer not succeeded in her litigation and in getting that ballot initiative passed. Wow, this is this is frightening stuff. Uh, let's bring in NBC NBC News senior legal correspondent Laura Jarrett. Um, uh, thank you for being here, Laura. Uh, talk to us about now what happens next in the Fifth Circuit. Well, it's interesting. You know, obviously, the Fifth Circuit tends to lean conservative. There's something like six judges on that court that were appointed by Trump, two of which heard uh, the case the last time. It was down there last week and obviously had upheld parts of Kaczmarek's order um, that was particularly far-reaching. Uh, so now the case will go back to the Fifth Circuit. We will get a new three-judge panel, uh, because the panel that heard it before was this there for that emergency motion. Now it will go to a merits panel, a brand-new panel of judges remains to be seen who is on that panel and how they treat it. But then that will get a full treatment on the merits. Now, the court has already expedited it, so it's going to be heard next month on May 17th. But, Joy, we may be having this conversation all over again pretty soon, because if the Fifth Circuit uh, decides to let Kaczmarek's order go forward, then you can be sure the Justice Department is going to appeal up to the Supreme Court once again. And it's why some had wondered whether the court would just grab the case for itself right now, knowing that we're we're going to be back here again. And I have another question for you, because the, the case, the Washington state uh, ruling seems yeah. to never get talked about. We just I talk know. about the Texas ruling. <laughs> Why doesn't that ruling have force, Laura? Well, you know, I think it's an interesting case. Remember, that case was brought as a strategic move by a bunch of Democratic attorneys general that were so worried about the Texas case that they said, let's do our own version of it, but the mirror image. Yet, not every Democratic attorney general signed on to it. Some of the biggest states, New York, California, not a party to that case. And so because that judge's ruling was only limited to 17 states plus Washington, D.C., I think somehow it kind of got lost and it, it, it didn't have the same force, even though I Obviously, it's still a federal judge with the exact same authority as Judge Kaczmarek. Somehow, it, it always was seen as this afterthought. But I do think it's possible that the Supreme Court recognized that that decision had the force of law and perhaps why some, were, you know, some of these justices decided to sign on to a stay. Uh, and let me note that the two justices who dissented uh, to the stay are Samuel Alito, the author of the Dobbs decision taking away women's right to abortion, uh, and— Clarence Thomas, who Correct. apparently is back from one of his fancy vacations and able to rule on this case, will remind you that Sonia Sotomayor said that she wonders whether the court will ever survive the stench of rulings that sound more like politics than law. I think the question is being answered every day. Laura Jarrett, Minnie Timaraju, 
Lisa Rubin, thank you all very much. Appreciate all three of you. Much more on this breaking news. The Supreme Court weighing in on the abortion pill. It's a positive development, but don't be fooled about the rise of Christian nationalism in the courts and in this country. Stay right there. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? Evangelical pastor and director of Vote Common Good, Doug Padgett on the rise of Christian nationalism and what's at stake in this year's election. We lack a story in this country about what our politics are supposed to achieve. And when we suggest to them that the common good can be your voting identity, rather than being Republican or being a Democrat or being fiscally this or that, big government or small government, but you care about the common good, people are like, oh yeah, that that I actually care about. That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and subscribe. This evening's abortion ruling is a welcome change for the court, given the trajectory of the past year, even if it's only temporary. The larger picture is more alarming. The Republican Party has allowed a small, fringe, white Christian nationalist movement to control the way the party and much of this country operates, posing a very real threat to freedom of religion and to the separation of church and state. Some examples. The Texas Senate approved a bill that would require public schools to prominently display the Ten Commandments in every classroom starting next year. That's right. Thou shalt not commit adultery slapped right next to the periodic table. Another bill also passed in the Texas State Senate would allow school districts to require time for students and employees to pray and read the Bible or other religious texts. Hey, Texans, does that include the Quran? Get back to us on that. Meanwhile, in Michigan, the state Senate passed a bill to end a decades-long ban on unmarried couples living together. The ban from 1931 could put unmarried couples who lewdly cohabitate behind bars. But get this, nine Republicans voted to keep the law, saying you should have to put a ring on it. What's next? Bringing back anti-miscegenation laws? If only they could. They're not even trying to hide their grotesque vision for America anymore. Here's a Republican lawmaker in Missouri defending child marriage. Just listen to what he said when his Democratic colleague pushed him on the issue. I've heard you talk about parents' rights to raise their kids how they want. In fact, I just double-checked. You voted no on making it illegal for kids to be married to adults at the age of 12 if their parents consented to it. You said, actually, that should be the law because it's the parents' right and the kids' right to decide what's best for them, to be raped by an adult, okay? Do you know any kids who have been With married marriage. at age 12? That any, was the law. You, know you voted kids? not to change it. Do you know any kids who have been married at age 12? I, I, I don't need to. I do. Uh, and guess what? They're still married. So, yes. In the year of our Lord, 2023, you just heard a Republican defending a practice that is widely considered to be a human rights violation. But this isn't just about one child rape apologist. These are the views that are taking over the country, clawing their way into the culture wars and into our laws. And keep in mind, these are minority views. 
Per this recent survey, only 10% of Americans view themselves as adherents of Christian nationalism. 19% of Americans say they sympathize with these views. These are not big numbers, but the survey found that Republicans are about four times more likely than Democrats or independents to be adherents of Christian nationalism. And they are practically salivating over taking away even more freedoms, emboldened by the hyper-conservative court that made their row-ending dreams come true. Joining me now is Frank Schaefer, author of Why I Am an Atheist Who Believes in God. And Frank, um, the good news today, sort of temporary good news, um, that we will not see a nationwide ban on River Pristone is good. But I think a lot of people are still nervous because this is still what really reads like a Christian nationalist court. What do you make of it all today? Well, Joy, you know my background. My father, Francis Schaeffer, was really the grandfather of the whole anti-abortion movement in terms of evangelicals that morphed into the Christian nationalist movement that has taken over the Republican Party, that does everything from keeping guns on our streets, because this is the backbone of the NRA, to closing abortion clinics. And now we have uh, a ruling that has just been stayed, as it were, to try to ban uh, what is known commonly as the abortion pill. But listen, I just have to <clears throat> point something out. These are not legal rulings. None of these are. This is political uh, machination and planning by the hardcore Christian nationalists in the GOP using people like Judge uh, Kamiski and Alito yeah, and Thomas and it has nothing to do with our traditions of law or the separation of church and state. When when you look at someone um, like Amy Coney Barrett uh, and and the people around her, you have to understand that the only reason they were appointed was because they were on a, a checklist provided by the Federalist Society to Donald Trump as the condition of him getting elected. People like uh, pe- people like Billy Graham's son, Franklin Graham, who I grew up with and knew when my dad was a big time evangelist as well, made a deal with Trump and said, you will have our support if you promise to appoint these judges. Well, now we are seeing the result. None of this is to do with the law. This is to do with the judicial coup against our democracy. These people are authoritarian. They fear democracy. They want to overturn elections. The Christian nationalist movement is a halfway point to a kind of authoritarian fascism. It's not anything to do with America anymore. This is beyond that. So this action by the Supreme Court is tactical joy. They realize that in overturning Roe, they have basically pissed off the majority of Americans. And what they are doing now is just taking a, a position of retreat, regrouping, and then they're going to go at it again. This abortion pill will be banned, just like Roe was overturned at some point, if they get their way. The only reason this would change is if they tactically look at it and understand that they will lose the presidency, the House, and the Senate. And that's where the ordinary American voter had damn well better stand up and be counted in the next few elections. Or we're going to see these people turn our country into an evangelical Christian version of Iran. That's what we're headed to. That's what these folks want to do. And any moderation they show is simply tactical. It has nothing to do with changing opinion or backing off. 
Frank, what is the end game? I mean, they want mandatory uh, the Ten Commandments displayed in school. That means parents then have to explain what adultery is to a child. I thought they didn't want sexual grooming of children. They want child marriage to be legal, child labor to be legal, essentially trans people to be made illegal. It, what kind of a world do they think that they're going to be creating? And why is it that they're not content to simply create that world at home in their own homes and not try to impose that on blue states who very very clearly don't want it. Yeah, you have to understand, these are true believers. And true believers are very dangerous people. You know, ask the Iranian women who try to take off their headscarf how this is working out. Ask Saudi women who have been jailed and tortured for doing something as abominable as wanting a driver's license. We have to understand right now in the world, there is a worldwide phenomena, a turn toward the right, a turn towards Hindu nationalism, extremism in Israel on the West Bank by by the settlers there, extremism here in this country by Christian white nationalists. This is not isolated only to America. We are in a fight for democracy. We are in a fight for civil rights, for our very lives as Americans, and for women's rights to have autonomy over their own body. That is going to be the big driving line, but they will not stop there. My friends who are married, my producer of my podcast, Ernie, who's married, a gay man, married to a pastor 17 years. He now fears for his marriage. He's not pretending. He actually mm -hmm. fears for it with good reason, because these guys have an agenda. And that agenda, we've only seen the first taste of it. The next few elections will decide how far they can get yeah. with this. Yeah, absolutely. And in Florida, the uh, one of the uh, flacks for the current governor uh, essentially invited LGBTQ people to please leave the state uh, if they are afraid. Just get out. Uh, thank you, Frank Schaefer. Much appreciated. And up next on the readout, Thanks, Twitter sir. is cheers. Twitter is imploding after Elon Musk removed blue check marks from legacy verified accounts, making it very hard to know if accounts are really who they say they are. We'll talk about the outsized impact that this has on journalism and information gathering in general. Up next. Jen Psaki. Have you ever seen the House this dysfunctional? Rachel Maddow. If winning the election is his plan to stay out of prison, what happens in that election if and when he does not win it? Mondays, back to back. Talk about the stakes of this back and forth, given Trump's behavior. What do you make of the statement from Hamas? Why they're doing it? What, what do you think it means? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9 p.m. Eastern, Mondays on MSNBC. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. I do want to remind everyone that everything after clearing the tower was icing on the cake. Oh. Oh. 
And then the cake exploded. <laughs> SpaceX claims that their rocket launch yesterday was a success, despite the fact that it literally blew up in midair just minutes after taking off. And frankly, there is no better metaphor for what is happening right now with Elon Musk's other shiny and expensive toy, Twitter. Over the past six months, Musk has laid off thousands of employees, cut Twitter's valuation in half, and welcomed Nazis and accounts spreading misinformation back onto the platform. But yesterday, we saw what may be the final nail in Twitter's coffin, when the famous blue checks were removed on the accounts of anyone who wouldn't pay Elon $8 a month. That includes the accounts of Oprah Winfrey and Elmo, just to name a few. Also yours truly, putting me in fantastic company. But it also means that now, on one of the biggest social media platforms in the world, there is no system in place to verify who is real and who is fake. And almost immediately, the website devolved into complete chaos. NBC News reported that impersonator accounts quickly emerged for users such as former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling, the city of New York, and New York Governor Kathy Hochul. A fake account retweeted a post that falsely claimed that the Democrat was running for re-election as governor, as a Republican. This is actually a very dangerous game that Musk is playing. The blue check was more than just a status symbol. It was a way for the millions of Twitter users to know that the person posting information was really who they claimed to be. And therefore, you could likely trust the info that they posted. And that is more important than ever in times of emergency or crisis. Now that the blue check means only that the poster was willing to hand over eight bucks to the guy who turned Tesla factories into racist hellholes and Twitter into Nazi town, and they can pretend to be whoever they want and say whatever they want, well, what could possibly go wrong? Joining me now to answer that question is NBC News senior reporter Ben Collins. Ben, what could possibly go wrong? And do you still have your blue check? (laughs) Uh, I lost it. I don't know where it went, uh, but it's gone now. Uh, yeah. So, so joy, there were 17,000 some odd verified check marks who were verified the old fashioned way, not paying for it. How many of those people do you think paid for it yesterday and today by about noon today? Okay. Liz, I'm getting to guess, right? Okay. I'm going to say 10. Okay. It's net plus 28. So about 320 of them signed up and 290 got rid of it. So they were playing with it for a couple of weeks and they were like, no, thank you. So uh, a net plus 28 uh, of, of those people. Um, and now uh, Elon Musk says you have to use Twitter blue to advertise on the platform, which is going to make it even harder for them to get advertisers on the platform. Um, so this is uh, like shooting yourself in both feet. I think I don't really know what the next step is here. By the way, I just want to, I want to cite my sources here. Uh, there's a guy named Travis Brown. who used to work with the company in 2014, 2015, still keeps dibs on it and tabs on it. There's a, uh, uh, he has access to a thing called the API, which is like basically a way to reliably take some data from the back end there. Um, so this is real information. Um, it's not looking pretty over there. I'm, I'm surprised 328 people, honestly, to be honest, would even sign up for it at all. I mean, th- look, the reality is, is that this is a platform that is actually pretty powerful and journalists have really relied on it. It's been a really important news aggregator for you, for me, for a lot of us. That's what we really used it for. And it was a great way to promote, you know, content and, and to put out other content that you're doing. But now that no one knows who anyone is, really. Talk about the dangers of that, particularly when we're in this disinformation war with Russian bots and, you know, U.S. Nazis. Yeah, it's just not a reliable website for information anymore. You know, last night, it's funny, last night there, there were, you know, 50 popes that I could see uh, impersonating the pope because he lost his check mark as well. Uh, but it's going to be <laughs> less funny. in that blue check? 
He's going to hell. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, they, they gave him one back for, you know, I think they comped the Pope <laughs> later on. But that's what's going on now. Uh, but look, you know, if there's a hurricane or if there's a tornado warning or if something's happening in the city of New York, which got first dated last night, um, and there was a, there were two rival New York City accounts. Uh, there's no real way to verify in the moment, especially if it's a small place, right? Um, if you're trying to pose as the mayor of a small place that just had a tornado go through it or something like that, or a city council or something, uh, there's no real way to verify that without picking up the phone the old-fashioned way, which kind of renders the whole point of Twitter reboot. You know, what, what frightens me, I mean, I remember when Cory Booker, um, back during when he was, I think it was when he was first running for president, was doing this thing where people could tweet to him that they needed their snow removed. And then he was showing up and, and doing that. I mean, this could actually be dangerous. You know, people could be tweeting out, you know, some sort of uh, hazard is happening to me. And then people come and somebody could get hurt. I mean, this is actually pretty dangerous. But I do want to talk about the sort of the absurd part of it. So he claims, Elon Musk, this is for egalitarian reasons. So why is he paying to give blue char- blue check marks to people like Stephen King who don't want them and LeBron James who said, we didn't want this, we didn't pay for it? Yeah, the people, the, the main major celebrities who said that we're not paying for this thing sort of retributively got these blue checks attached to them um, after the fact. And Elon said he's paying for it. I, Look, this is how Elon views this website. That it's this big status website where you get to fight back against the libs and all this stuff. This, that's how he's viewed this website forever. And now, you know, the people who used it for utilitarian purpose, people who are like, you know, tweeting at Southwest Airlines asking how their flight was doing or something, that's over with. That is not going to happen anymore. Uh, Elon doesn't have, when he speaks about egalitarian stuff, he doesn't have that utilitarian experience. He has his own jets. You know, he can he doesn't have to complain to customer service on Twitter. Uh, and that is going to go away because there's no real way to verify who's who on there anymore. Yeah, it, it, it is a shame. Uh, thank you. And thank you for that. We got we got the, the scoop on how many people signed up and got real blue checks. But before I let you go, this is the part where I get to embarrass you, my friend. I want to congratulate you, Ben, for winning the 2023 Walter Cronkite Award for Excellence in TV Political Journalism. The USC Annenberg Norman Lear Center is honoring our friend Ben and his, and I'm quoting here, brilliant brave work. They write, it is inspiring to watch Collins cover stories like the racist manifesto of the Buffalo shooter or the anti-trans campaigns in the lead up to the Club Q shooting, bearing witness to the extremism on the dark web and holding it accountable. Judges found his wrestling with the responsibilities of journalists and with his own work's impact or lack uh, lack thereof on violence, quote, honest and necessary. We here at The Readout actually agree. And you didn't know I was going to do this, Ben. Uh, so I just want to <laughs> congratulate you, man. You were well-deserving. We lured you on in order just to really do that. So thank you very much for coming on and also talking about uh, what Emo has done to, to, to Twitter. <laughs> Joy, thank you so much. And it's it's because of you and it's because of your show that that even happened. And I really do appreciate it. And thank you and your producers for everything. Seriously, thank you. C- come back often. Thank you very much, Ben. Much, much appreciated. All right. We'll be back after this. We've got a lot to get to in our politics block tonight, from abortion to some major 2024 developments. Join me now to do so is Fernan Amandi, Democratic pollster and MSNBC political analyst, and Dean Obadala, host of the eponymous Dean Obadala Show on Sirius XM. Fernan, I'm going to start with you. Uh, for, uh, Vice President Kamala Harris has weighed in on this decision, the stay uh, of this Texas ruling banning Mifepristone. She says, 
um, quote, the president and I will continue to fight to protect a woman's freedom to make decisions about her own body and access to reproductive health care, including medication, abortion. No one should stand between a woman and her doctor. We also had, obviously, a statement from the president. Fernand, talk about the political impact here of abortion. You have Ron DeSantis with a six-week abortion ban that's still in the courts. You have Tim Scott, who has said, hey, I'll sign the strictest abortion ban I can get. How is this playing out politically, do you think? Joy, it's the Republican nightmare from 2022 carrying over now into 2024. Any hopes that abortion might have been sidelined as an issue that was going to galvanize the anti-MAGA, anti-extreme Republican uh, electorate is just gone by the wayside. I think this ruling not only is it wonderful, of course, for women across the country, especially to say that as a father of a young girl, but the fact that Republicans are just not going to be able to get away from this issue, it's going to be a defining one. I think the vice president's comments suggest that and the fear, the abject fear by candidates like Tim Scott, who find themselves unable to in any way articulate a coherent response to this extremism suggests just how much of a third rail it is going to continue to be for Republicans going into 2024. Even Trump knows that this is kryptonite, Joy. Absolutely. And the the thing is, Dean, so you have President Biden, who's likely going to announce a reelection. He's got a female vice president who's a former prosecutor who specialized in crimes against women and children. You have Republicans out there saying that adults should be able to marry little girls, that 10 year olds should be forced to give birth. So they're saying they're out to protect children, but their policies are so anti-child, anti-girl, anti-woman. And they're going to go into 2024 against Biden. That's got a decent economy. And they're the ones trying to tank it. And with this this sort of strafe attack against women and LGBTQ people, I don't understand how they think all, any of that is good politics. Not I to mention the guns. Care. Right. I, I don't know if they care if it's good politics when it gets to the Christian nationalist part, Joy, that you talk about all the time. They're saying, here's my religion. I'm going to force it down your throat as law. If I lose an election, so be it, because they think they're doing God's work. I, I really do think some of them believe that. Some of them might be put over calculation, but Polling shows this position's awful. And the idea they care about girls or women, when they're going to force women who is raped to carry a fetus to term, or they're going to force women across this country to carry a fetus to term, even though they don't want it, meaning more women will literally die because maternal mortality. So look, the GOP, this is who they are. And the one thing I would say for people, don't applaud the Supreme Court because today they put that decision on hold. We're only here because of this right-wing extremist Supreme Court that overturned Roe v. Wade and set this up. So this is a Trump overturned Roe v. Wade, a Trump judge overturned the banned the abortion pill. And now Trump judges are never going to save us. It's up to us to save us. And, and you know, Fernand, I, I, you know, you're in Florida. Ron DeSantis, to me, feels like he's circling the drain. Everything he's doing is so antithetical to winning a general election, trying to ban AP history, banning black history, um, you know, b- banning abortion at six weeks. He wasn't even happy enough with the 15 week. Now he's going for the six week ban, you know, and all of this just saying the word woke 470 times in a row, which doesn't mean anything. Fighting Disney, being anti-business. I don't even understand his campaign unless he's running to be Donald Trump. Trump's friend. And Donald Trump doesn't even like him, nor does seemingly anyone else. Well, well, Joy, what's happening is he's running the Florida gubernatorial election again, thinking that that playbook that worked here in Florida is going to work across the country. But what what he has learned this week is that Trump giveth and Trump taketh away. The person who has, in essence, 
terminated the DeSantis candidacy, not even six weeks into the effort, is Donald Trump. He just put out a blistering statement today talking about how Florida under DeSantis is a state that uh, is really unlivable. Costs have gone up, quality of life, the costs of, of renting, the cost of affordable housing. This is not Democrats or Joe Biden or Kamala Harris making this case. This is Donald Trump. And then you have the other Republican hitmen like Chris Christie circling above pointing out his Disney stance, which seems like a suicide pact when you consider the fundamental role, the transformational role that a private sector company like Disney plays in our state of Florida. Something like $2 trillion on economic impact over the last 50 years, and Ron DeSantis is threatening the viability of that industry. I think we will look back to this week as the week that the DeSantis candidacy in 2024 was fatally wounded. Yeah, I mean, even a former member of Congress that used to sit next to him when he was a Tea Party congressman said he never even spoke to him. The guy was a freshman and he said he's an a-hole who doesn't care about people. Fort Lauderdale would like uh, to have a word because clearly he doesn't care about them because they're drowning. Uh, you know, Dean, it, it doesn't seem like it's just DeSantis. It does seem like the, the playbook. I mean, you have you have a guy that's running in Ohio who says there should be reparations for white Americans. Mm-hmm. White people should yep. get reparations. You have Carrie Lake saying that he she would destroy the field if she ran for the United States Senate when she she couldn't get elected governor, but still think she's the governor. Like, it doesn't seem like they're learning from the lessons they should have gotten from 2022. It's like Peter Pan, Joy. They just close their eyes and wish whatever they want. And it comes true. It's remarkable. It's like Tinkerbell, hold me. I'm governor. This is look, I'll be like to go back to the Senate for one second. Donald Trump deserves to be the nominee of this party because he defines this party. He's a white yeah. nationalist. He is a fascist. He's embraced violence. And he's delivered the judges who gave them Christian nationalism. The three Supreme Court justices overturned Roe v. Wade are all Trump. So when we run against him in 2024, because he will be the nominee, Donald Trump overturned Roe v. Wade. So the yeah. rest of them playing their little cosplay, but Trump is the guy we're going against in 2024, and we're going to destroy him. I'm going to say something Fernand said to me many, many years ago in politics. No one's going to vote for the pretend version when they can get the real thing. Trump is the real thing. There's no reason to go for DeSantis. Uh, I listen to smart people. Fernand, Randy, uh, Dina Vidala, <laughs> thank you both very much. We're back in a moment. That is tonight's readout. But before we go, I want to let you know that Monday's show is going to be really big. The Tennessee Three, State Representatives Justin Pearson, Justin Jones, and Gloria Johnson will join me following their meeting with President Biden. Be sure to join us. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win.